Well, all right. Hey, guys, it's been a while since I've been up here. Um, and so uh, just I've, I've had a great time just uh, taking some time to really reflect and to pray and to really cast vision and to really receive from the Lord. And so I've done that over the last uh, few weeks as I've taken a break from preaching. Um, but uh, really glad that we had all these guest preachers. Uh, you know, just one a quick announcement uh, before we jump into today. Uh, we are having a youth ministry lock-in this coming Saturday. So if you have youth students that you know of, Please have them sign up, seattlenewlife.org slash bulletin. We would love for them to participate. That's this Saturday and Sunday. There's food, fellowship, and then sharing of faith. So all the good Fs in our lives. Um, well, during my break, I was really um, planning our, our future and trying to see what we needed down the line. And next week, starting next week for two weeks, we're doing a mental health uh, sermon series. It's a quick one, just two weeks, but we found two seminary-trained uh, health, mental health professionals who are going to come and on week one speak on anxiety, and uh, sorry, depression, and then on week two talk about anxiety, and kind of equip you with tools, because I think that uh, although it's great that the stigma of finding mental health professionals like therapists and psychiatrists uh, has been lessening and there's a, a greater awareness of that, uh, on the other hand, there's this sense in which it feels like I can only get better if I see a counselor or a therapist, you know what I mean? And so what we want to do is kind of equip you with biblical tools that will help you in your daily lives to kind of fight against these sorts of things like anxiety and depression. So we're going to be doing that for the next two weeks. Uh, and then starting at the end of September, we're going to be entering into a vision series until Christmas. And we'll be, be going through the book of Nehemiah. And if you don't know anything about the book of Nehemiah, that's okay. I didn't know either. Um, but it's really about the people of God and Nehemiah. Nehemiah really building God's kingdom together and some of the obstacles that come their way. And so I'm really excited for that. We'll be traveling uh, through every chapter of the book of Nehemiah, but at the end of the day, the hope is to really rally this church together for a common goal and a common vision of really building God's kingdom together. And then come uh, Christmas, we'll, we'll enter an Advent series where we talk about the essentials of Christianity. We'll be making a case to people who doubt, who are skeptical, for people who have been in church their whole lives, about why we can actually believe Jesus is Jesus and why he's actually Lord and Savior of our lives. And then come uh, starting in January, we'll do a whole sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you know anything about the Sermon on the Mount, it's really challenging. It's going to challenge you to live differently. Uh, which we're going to talk a little bit about today, all right? Uh, but those are some of the things coming down the line. Also, in January, the hope is to start uh, an evangelistic class called Alpha. Some of you may have heard of this course. It's a, it's like a 12-week course, and what we do is we invite uh, you to ask your non Christian friends or skeptics or doubters or people who are just like not as sure about their faith to come to these classes to hear about why Jesus Christ is logical and reasonable uh, and why uh, and, and just uh, give them a safe space to share and to cast their doubts and not to have anybody fly back in their face and say like you're wrong like this is why we're right um, but for people to really just listen and to say hey like uh, that's a good that's a good reason to doubt and that's th those are absolutely valid and we're just here to love you and to share with you so uh, take a uh, you know uh, hopefully you look out for that starting in January as well. All right, well, we have the text at hand, and uh, I've been thinking and praying a lot about this text, but we're, uh, if you can, open up with me to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 14 to 22. And um, uh, whenever the book of Revelation is brought up, always sounds kind of scary, but you have to remember that the book of Revelation is really about uh, a letter uh, to seven churches in Asia Minor. And today, we're going to be reading one of the seven letters to one of the churches. Uh, and um, really the hope today is, is to just help you guys to live out your faith more and more every single day. So at this time, if you're able, would you rise with me as we read God's word today together? I'll read this for us. 
I'll say at the end, this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God, I'll, I'll pray for us, and then I'll seat you after uh, the prayer. Okay, Revelation chapter 3, 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We pray, Lord, that this challenging word and even just this scripture right now, Lord, is challenging uh, uh, probably a number of us here. Uh, We pray and ask that your spirit would soften our hearts, give us grace to hear and humility to really apply. Uh, We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Um, So I I would say about eight or nine years ago, I remember listening to NPR. And on NPR, they had this... um, uh, the story about this movement sweeping across Europe, and it was called the Atheist Church Movement. I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, right, because atheists and church never go together, but for some reason, the atheists have decided to gather together to do actually what we do, which is to sing songs, to listen to like a TED Talk, to gather in small groups, and to even do some community service outreach stuff. And so this is still actually going on. Um, they, they start in Europe, but they're here in the States as well. And uh, every church is a little bit different, but for the most part, they have like a senior pastor. They have like a, like they sing like secular songs. They do like TED Talks. They have like, uh, you know, little helpful things for you to do, community service outreach, all of these things, right? And I remember when I first heard this report, and if you're hearing this for the first time, you might be a little troubled, and you're a Christian. And, and I was the same way. I was, I was a little troubled by this, and I, I didn't know why. But as I prayed and I asked God a little bit more about why I was troubled about this, um, ultimately, I, I, I felt a number of things, but I really felt like God was saying to me at that moment this, because I was asking God again and again, why would you allow such an organization to exist? Like, why would you let these people thrive and flourish? Um, because you are sovereignly in control of all things. And ultimately, what I came to, and this is probably just a part of it, not the totality of it, but a part of what I felt God challenging me to is this. This is what the bare minimum is, Eric. This is the bare minimum of what Christians should be doing. In other words, let me put it like this, right? You don't need the love of a Savior You don't need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to come to church on Sundays, to listen to good music, to listen to a speaker, to gather in friend groups, and then to serve the community just a little bit. Like, you don't need a Savior to die on a cross for you and a Holy Spirit who's empowered, who's God himself empower you in order to do those things. But if you read the Gospels, what does Jesus tell us to do? He tells us to pick up our crosses and to follow him. And that we need the Holy Spirit. That we need the gospel to actually do. 
Jesus Christ came to die on a cross for us, not so that we could live comfortable lives, but rather Jesus Christ came and died so that we too would pick up our cross and die for one another, for die for our cities, so that we can bring life and wholeness and healing and the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord over all to all peoples of all nations, of all tongues, of all tribes. This is our goal and our mission. Our Savior came to die and to call us to himself. And today we're going to be studying a passage from the book of Revelation, as I mentioned. And again, these are seven letters written to the churches of Asia Minor. And today we're going to be studying the church in Laodicea. And the thing about the church in Laodicea is I, I think all of these seven churches that are written to are sort of models for all sorts of different churches across time and space. And yet I think the church of Laodicea has the most in common with the church in America. And so we'll be studying this, and really the question for us to really examine today is, are we the church in Laodicea? And my argument is going to be, yes, we are. And, and my argument is going to be the same things that Jesus rebukes them with is the same thing he's rebuking us with. The same charge he gives to them is the same charge he's given to us, New Life Fellowship Churches in America, today. Are we the church in Laodicea? And if so, will we respond to the call Jesus Christ gives? And I'll, and I'll talk about this call in a little bit. And you'll, you'll notice this. It's not a huge call. It's not a life-ending call, okay? You'll see in a moment, okay? So if you're taking notes, you can write these three points down. We're going to be talking about excommunicating Jesus. That's our first point. Our second point is hot and cold for Jesus. And then our last point is opening up for Jesus, okay? Three points there. So you can write those three things down. Let's look at our first point, excommunicating Jesus. Let's dive into our passage, okay? Uh, let's start with the end, though. Look at verse 20, okay? Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, I've read this verse at least a hundred times. And every time I read this verse, I think, wow, how beautiful, how lovely. And it is. It's beautiful and lovely because Jesus is pursuing us like a lover would, right? Standing at our doors, knocking, saying, hey, come on, like, come with me, dine with me, right? Be with me. And yet, when I read this commentator named Robert Mounts, who, by the way, wrote, literally wrote every single seminary's textbook on Greek. All the, all the Greek textbooks in all seminaries, they use Robert Mounts' Greek textbook. And he wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. And what he says here about this verse struck me struck me so hard and so deep. Let me read it to you, okay? He says this, in the context of the Laodicean letter, however, it is, listen to this, self-deluded members of the church. Self-deluded, hold on to that. Self-deluded members of the church who are being addressed. To the church, Christ says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And listen to this now. Hey, this, this is the part that really blew me away. In their blind self-sufficiency they had, as it were, excommunicated the risen Lord from their congregation. Do you know what excommunicating is? It means you cast somebody out of the church. You tell them you're not welcome here anymore. In an act of unbelievable condensate, oh, I can't say that. He requests permission to enter and reestablish fellowship. They excommunicated Jesus. You see, people focus in on the fact that Jesus spits this lukewarm church out of his mouth, but in reality, what has happened is the church has actually kicked Jesus out. You know, for the longest time on our website, bold in the front, at the very front of our website was this phrase, you belong here. 
And it was our church's way of basically saying, look, the gospel is this, right? That whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're Asian or non-Asian, whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you are Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. You're all welcome here. You all belong here, right? That was our whole thing. But what this text is telling us is that although everyone is welcomed here, there's one person who isn't, and his name is Jesus Christ. Because here's the, here's the reality. This is what Revelation is telling us, that the one person who doesn't belong in our church might be Jesus Christ himself. And look, let me try to parse this apart, right? Look, do you have a friend? And just, just take this example. Don't, don't go over this example, but just kind of take it for what it is, right? Do you have a friend past or maybe present, maybe that you were friends, who was so different than you in every way, shape, and form, right? Like think about, like maybe they were politically different, uh, they were socioeconomically different, they were vocationally different, they were life stage different, every aspect of them was different, right? Most likely you're either not friends with them, you've grown distant with them, or it's like you just say you're friends but you don't really hang out with each other that much. Because here's the reality is that people who are so different than us People who are very, very different than us, they kind of make us uncomfortable so we don't really hang out with them as much. And I wonder if this is us and Jesus. Like, go back and read the Gospels and look at how different your life is, my life is, than Jesus' life. And look, if you hang out with Jesus, most likely you're going to be like, whoa, I'm nothing like you, man. Like, you kind of make me feel uncomfortable. Like, this, your lifestyle makes me feel weird. Like, think about Jesus, right? Go back and read the Gospels, which I've been doing. I've been reading through the whole Bible, and I'm on Matthew now. And when I'm reading Matthew, I'm like, Jesus' life is so different than mine. Like, think about it, right? Jesus was healing people everywhere he went. He was healing them socially. He was healing them physically. He was, feeling the, he was healing their emotional lives, their spiritual. He was healing in every facet. And yet I go around and I hurt people all the time. I hurt my wife. I hurt my kids. In fact, yesterday we were driving back from Ocean Shores. And my kid was crying because he was in his seat for like three hours. And I told him, like, please be quiet, right? I just shouted at him. I hurt people, I gossip about people, talk about people behind their back. Jesus was the richest God king and every moment of every part of his life, he got poorer and poorer and poorer until the very end when he was on the cross. Did you know that Jesus died naked? He had no clothes. We, we see these standards of these things of Jesus with clothes, but he was actually naked. He only had the crown of thorns, he had nothing. He had no followers and he was dying and dead at the end of his life, and yet what am I doing? I'm getting richer and richer, more status, more popular, more of this. Jesus was dying to himself. Jesus was selfless, and yet our culture is getting more and more self-centered. Social media, all about me, what I ate. Here's my Instagram, here's me. Here's what I look like today. Here's what I look like tomorrow. Here's what I look like from a year from now, right? This is what I look like old. This is what I look like young. This is what I look like a baby, right? Like all of these things, all about me, more and more self-centered. Jesus lived out of the truth, and he told people the truth in, yeah, in, in love, and yet I live a double hypocritical life. Jesus was sinless and perfect. I, I'm sinful. And yet here's one of the clearest commandments that no one in the history of Christianity can ever debate me on. The clearest commandment you will ever find in all of Scripture, and no one can debate you on this. And that's this. I'm about to say right now. Jesus says this. Come and follow me. Become like me. And yet we become more unlike Jesus every single day. How can we say, oh yeah, I'm becoming more like you. I'm your follower, Jesus, when we don't become anything like him. We are called as Christians to live the way Christ lived. How can we claim to be Christ followers and yet not have any part of our life look like his? The only way to do so is to what? Is to delude ourselves. It's to lie to ourselves. 
Jesus' lifestyle makes you and I so uncomfortable that we push him away. We excommunicate him. You know, like, I, I, I know for, for a lot of you, if you're like me, right, we love Jesus because he takes away my shame and my guilt. Like, I love how Jesus provides me peace and comfort. I love how Jesus is there for me in times of crisis, which he is, and he loves doing that for you. He's your wonderful counselor, and he loves doing that for you. And yet that's all we want him as. We're like, Jesus, be my wonderful counselor. But then Jesus starts saying, hey, like, come follow me. We're like, whoa, 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 hey, what do you mean? Hey, why don't you stand outside, Jesus? Like, just, just go outside the door. Just stand there. When I'm ready, when I'm in crisis, when I need your help, I'll come and get you, Jesus. But you stay there. Stay outside. I don't want you a part of my life. Oh, okay, but crisis mode. Okay, come, Jesus. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, I, I need you. I need you. Oh, but follow me? No, no, no. Stay outside, Jesus. Stay outside. And look how Jesus responds to us. Look how gracious Jesus is. Verse 20 again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I'll kind of give you the end of the sermon here now, but if you remember a few weeks back, Pastor Jason Min from Los Angeles came and guest spoke for us, and his sermon title was called The Next Faithful Step. And in his sermon, he, if you haven't listened to it, I really, really encourage you, if there's one sermon you listen to in all of our archives, listen to his because it's so powerful. And his whole point is simply this. Jesus is not asking you to sell all your possessions and move overseas. What Jesus is saying to you is just take the next faithful step. I'm calling you to something right now. Just take that step. And here again, Jesus just gives you a small step. Look at what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, come and sell all your possessions and come follow me. Hey, come and leave all your things and come follow me. Go overseas to mission and die for me. He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? He says, eat with me. Fellowship with me. Dine with me. Come and eat good food. Come on, come. And yet we won't even do that. Jesus says, just eat with me, fellowship with me, dine with me. And we, look, I'm about to challenge you, the church, all of you in here, including those of you who are online. Look, some of us still worship at home, and that's great, okay? There are some of us who still have safety issues, and we're still wrestling with whether or not we want to reemerge because of COVID issues. And that's good. I'm glad that you can use our online tools uh, for that purpose, okay? There are some of you who still worship at home because maybe you were hurt by the church emotionally, spiritually, and man, you are not ready to step in with other Christians yet, but you're ready to listen to God's word, and I praise God that he brought you this far, okay? And I'm glad you're utilizing our online worship in that way, okay? I'm glad. Um, and, and that's the purpose of our online worship is to be shared, it's to be used so that people who don't feel safe can feel safe and worship, right? But for those of you who worship from home, not because you've been hurt by the church, not because you don't feel unsafe, but simply out of comfort. I mean, I hope this passage challenges you just a little bit. Like, just come eat with me. Come and worship me. Come and be with my people and come be with me. There are some of us who won't get up out of our beds and get dressed and bring our kids to church simply because of comfort. And look, this is what it's communicating. Imagine if you put on a birthday celebration. Imagine you had a wedding celebration and 50% of your friends said, hey, man, great. You know, you're, you're getting one year older or you're getting married. But you know what? I want to attend via Zoom. You'd be like, hey, brother, like that, that hurts. That stings. I have, I have pretty high self-confidence, but that one stings, man. You want to just come... And, and they were like, and you're like, oh, why? Is it because of COVID? No, 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 because I'm just uncomfortable. I, I just don't want to get dressed. I hate weddings. Like, hey, man, like that, that kind of stings. And this is what we do to Jesus. We say, hey, I love you, Jesus, but I'm just going to worship you from home. I'm just going to be comfortable. And what we forget, friends, is that Jesus invites us here. 
to worship together collectively. And it's a practice that grows us deeper. And, and even this, Jesus is calling, just come dine with me. Come eat with me. Just Sabbath every week. Come and worship me. Look, our online services are designed to share sermons and services. Our online service is designed so that even if you're away on vacation, you can still worship with your community. Uh, our online services are designed so that you can feel safe at home sometimes, right? All of these things. But it's not designed so that you can forgo in-person worship. That is not what it's designed for. Coming to worship is a practice. It's a practice that reminds you to slow down. It's a practice that reminds you you're not the only person on planet Earth, but there are other Christians here, and you are a part of this larger body, the hands and feet of Christ, worshiping God together. It's a reminder and a practice that tells you, hey, you know what? Christianity is not just content to be consumed like a podcast, but actually when you come, you're giving something to God. You're giving worship. You're giving exaltation. You're giving these things to the community. It's a practice that helps us become more and more like Jesus. So let me ask us, are we any different than the atheist church? They don't care about Jesus. Do we care about Jesus? They, he's not in the atheist church building. Is he in our building? Or is he standing outside the doors knocking? Look, this leads us to our second point, hot and cold for Jesus. Look, this is what happened in Laodicea, right? Jesus calls his church to live like he lives, and yet they didn't want to live like Jesus. And so listen to what Jesus says. Look at his indictment to the church in verse 15. He says, I know your heart no no he says i know your works like jesus doesn't even need his psychic powers to like read your hearts he says like i just look at your life and i know already i know your works you are neither cold nor hot would that you uh, were either cold or hot so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold i will spit you out of my mouth for those of you who have grown up in church like me you might have heard this interpretation where like cold means like non-believer and hot means like you're on fire for Jesus. So what Jesus is saying here is like, I'd rather have you be an unbeliever than like, an, like than a lukewarm believer. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. That would be ludicrous. Like why would Jesus want you to be lukewarm, like unbeliever than like a lukewarm believer? It doesn't make any sense. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying I'd rather have you be a non-Christian or a Christian. What he's saying is this, and this is what I think hot and cold means. Laodicea was such a wealthy city that they were able to bring in waters from other cities. And so one of the cities that they went to was a city called Colossae, and they had cold, refreshing waters, mountain waters, cold, from like an iceberg or whatever. And they would drink this, and it would be really refreshing. But they also were neighboring a city called Herapolis, and at that city, they had these warm, hot, medicinal waters that they could soak in. And Jesus is using an illustration that would be very pertinent to this church. And he's saying, look... What he's saying is this, look, what is lukewarm water? What is lukewarm, what is it? It's, it's the same temperature, it's the same temperature as the room. There's no difference than the room and the water. It's the same exact thing. And what Jesus is saying is, look, you're not different than the world. You're the exact same temperature as the world is. Like, hot water is hot. It's different than the room temperature. Cold water is cold. It's different than the room temperature. But you are just like the room temperature water. Like, you're lukewarm. Like, nobody likes lukewarm water. Even on a hot day, I'd rather drink hot water than, than, than lukewarm water. But we are lukewarm because we look just like the world. Jesus' life was so radically different than the surrounding culture, and he's letting the church know that your life, your works should be so radically different than the world, the surrounding area, that it should either be hot or cold, but nowhere should it be lukewarm. Look, let me ask you this. When people get to know you, do they, do they find your life to be refreshing? Like, 
do you know what refreshing cold water does? What does it do? It energizes you, right? Imagine you're on a hike on a hot day, blistering heat, right? You're hiking up, you're losing energy, and then you stop. What do you do? You open up a cold glass of water, you drink it, and what do you do afterwards? You're like, ah, yeah, I'm energized. I can go again. And there are Christians that you know, when you hear their life story, you're like, wow, I'm like energized again. I'm going to live for Jesus just because I heard your life story. Like, just because I know who you are, I'm energized by you. I'm going to keep living for Jesus. Like, does your life do that? Um, I went to a missions conference uh, several weeks back, and um, there were all these missionaries talking. Uh, some of them gave sermons. Some of them were interviewed. And in one of the interview kind of panels that they had, uh, one of the pastors was interviewing these two missionaries. And this one missionary, he was, uh, he had to, uh, just by his appearance, he had to have been 85 years old. I don't know, but I was just looking at him. I had to guess maybe 85 years old. And um, he was talking about his story, and it was so moving. He basically said this. He used to be a very well-to-do businessman. He had millions and millions of dollars, and he was actually planning on retiring. He, he had come to about 65 years of age, and he was thinking about retiring either in Napa Valley or I, I think it was like Florida somewhere. And because uh, he loves golf and he loves wine, he wanted to move to, to like a winery area where there's lots of golf courses. So he thought, okay, either Napa or Florida. And uh, as he was discerning whether or not to move to Napa or to Florida, like God just struck him. And God was telling him, I want you to sell everything and basically go to, go to the mission fields for me. And as he was talking about this, like, I was just so moved because one of the things the interviewer asked him was like, why? Like, why would you do this? Like, what convinced you to do this? And of course, it was Jesus, but ultimately, he said this. He said, when I was thinking about it and praying about it, he said, I was meditating on what is the most exciting life I could ever have. And he said, I, I imagine myself golfing every day and drinking wine every day. And he says, I think that would get old over time. I think I could get tired of golfing and drinking wine. But he said, when I thought about living for Jesus every moment and risking everything for him, I thought that's the most exciting life I ever want to live. And he's 85. He actually has cancer. He's literally dying now. And with every living breath he has in his body, he's going to give it all for Jesus until the day he dies. And when I was sitting there listening to his testimony, people knew I was a pastor, but like I was like sitting in the car. I was just like weeping. I was just like crying and crying, and I couldn't stop. It was like one of those cryings where I just, I wanted to stop because I did I was so embarrassed to be crying, but I just kept weeping and weeping and weeping because I was so moved and energized by his life. Are you energized? Are people energized by your life? Are you refreshing? Hot water, on the other hand, is healing. When you go, right, after a long snowboarding day, right, what do you want to do? You want to get into the jacuzzi, the hot tub, right? Or on a, on a cold winter's day, what's going to warm your soul is it's going to be a hot cup of tea or a hot cup of coffee. And in the same way, is your life healing? Are you a healing kind of person? Um, as I was thinking through the people in my life who were really healing for me, um, I, I know I've already mentioned him already, but Pastor Jason Min was one of the few individuals that came to my mind. And one of the reasons why he came to my mind is because lukewarm people, or generally our culture, the more successful you get, the more out of touch you get. And the more successful you get, the more you expect people to be prideful, for them to talk about themselves, for them to kind of uh, prop up their accomplishments, right? It's kind of natural for people to do that. And I, I would say this, if you get to know Pastor Jason, and he'll never tell you about these things, he's probably one of the few most accomplished people that I know. Even before he was in ministry, he had his own business. He, and then he sold it to go into ministry. But I don't, I don't want to go through his accomplishments, but I'll just say this. He's probably one of the most accomplished people. And even in ministry now, he's so accomplished. His church, I mean, during the pandemic, churches were shrinking. 
And, and, and churches, some churches got cut in half, like 50%, and yet his church is growing. Like they're starting a second service now. They, they have this room that can fill about 500 people, and now they're going to start a second because the room is just getting too full. And yet he never talks about any of those things. He never says any of those things. And yet what Pastor Jason Min does, and when I was hanging out with him, all he did was ask me questions about me. Hey, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? What's this? And if you ever meet him, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're uncool or cool. It doesn't, mean if you, it doesn't matter what you are on the spectrum. He treats everyone equally the same. And he listens and he leans in and he's so interested in other people. And it warms me. It, like, it really was healing for me to spend time with him. Because throughout that whole time, like, it was all, he was just like, hey, how? And of course, I asked him questions, but that was the only time he would talk about himself, is when I would ask him questions. But the rest of the time, he was so fixed in and just like, hey, tell me about everything. How's it going? Like, and it, for me, it was so healing. And I'm asking you, are you a healing kind of person? Look, if you're a non-Christian in here, if you're tuning in online, you're not a believer yet, I want to apologize to you. I think one of the reasons why you may not be a Christian today or one of the reasons why you may not like the church is because of us, because we've been lukewarm. We haven't been refreshing. We haven't been healing. We've been living this lukewarm temperature life. Jesus says, come and follow me, and we have not been following him. And I want to apologize to you because that's not how we should be living. This leads us to our third and final point, what, uh, opening up to Jesus. Now, there's kind of two parts to this point, but the first part is this. I want to kind of identify how we become lukewarm. And then the second part, I want to talk about what's sort of the cure, if you would, to this lukewarmness. How can we become like on fire? How can we be hot and cold Christians again? And here's, here's, the, here's the question, right? What helps create a lukewarm Christian? And I think the passage tells us here. And it's really simple. And it's something I talk about all the time. It's wealth. It's riches. It's being wealthy. It's having lots of money, lots of power, lots of status. Um, I'm not saying that wealth will automatically make you lukewarm, but similar to how maybe a damp, warm, uh, you know, environment is just good grounds for like bacteria and germ and mold to like breed, right? Uh, similarly, a rich and wealthy lifestyle is gonna just create an environment where lukewarmness can thrive. Um, look what Jesus says in verse 17 here. Actually, verse 17 and 18. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And I think that's the biggest thing. It's not wealth in and of itself, but it's the fact that wealth creates pride. And pride says, I need nothing. I don't even need you, God. I just got me, I got my wealth, my power, my stuff. I can do it. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The church of Laodicea and, the, and Laodicea itself was a church and a city that was bawling out of control. I mean, they had so much wealth. In fact, it is plain as if you read any history on the city of Laodicea, it is abundantly clear that they had money on top of money. And do we not right now, do we not right now live in one of the wealthiest cities in the nation? Nay, in the world. I don't know. I didn't research this, but I'm just guessing. We're tech city. Man, tech city, we got money coming in. We got so much money coming in that by proxy people can get rich. Like, you don't have to be a part of the tech industry to, to, like, experience the wealth that's pouring into Seattle. There's so much money here. There's so much prosperity here. 
And Laodicea was no different. Laodicea prided itself on three things, and it's sort of interesting here. Laodicea prided itself on financial wealth, an extensive textile industry, and then thirdly, a, a popular eye salve that was exported around the world, which is not hard to see now why Jesus says, come buy from me these three things. Right, look what he says. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, financial industry. He says, uh, uh, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, textile industry. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see eye salve industry. In other words, if he were talking to us Seattleites, he would say, hey, come buy from me all of your, you know, your tech goods. Come buy from me all your software. Come buy from me all your airplanes because of Boeing, right? He would say something like that. Leia's, Laodicea's financial wealth had blinded them to their true reality. They thought they were well-adjusted, good people because they had homes, they had cars, they had good-paying jobs, they had a family, right? all this stuff. They thought they were good. And yet Jesus Christ comes to them and says, look, you are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, blind, and naked. You think you're all well-adjusted, you think you're all good, but you're not. When I look at you through my Jesus Christ sunglasses, I see people who are absolutely naked and broke. Look, we not only live in the richest city in the world, but let's be honest here, right? Of course, there are Asian and non-Asian people here, but most of you are Asian-American. And so I'm going to say that I literally Googled this because I heard about this, right? I typed into Google the richest race per capita in America, okay? You can Google this yourself. I don't know if you'll get the same church uh, results, but this is what came up. Look, on the screens, okay? What's, Asians in big black bold letter. Asians were the richest race per capita in America, and now, I'm not citing this to say that Asian Americans don't have their difficulties living here in the U.S., but I'm saying this because we're not only the wealthiest city, but we, we are one of the wealthiest races in all of America. And here's what happens. Most of the time, not all the times, but a lot of times you hang out with people who are like you. And so Asian people hang out with other Asian people. And guess what happens in those times? You find out that, oh, they have a lot of money too. They, and you begin to think that this wealth is normative, but it's not. And so you're like, oh, they bought one house? They bought two? Oh, they have two cars. Oh, maybe I need two cars. Maybe I need two houses. Maybe I need three cars, you know, whatever. Because you see other people with more. And you think you're poor, but you're not poor. You're actually really, really wealthy. You feel poor because compared to other people, you may not have as much as other people, but in reality, we are rich. And this richness blinds us to the reality, reality that we are spiritually starving, that we are spiritually out of shape, that we are spiritually malnourished. This is the best illustration that I could think of, and I actually got this from another sermon at that missions conference. And I'm taking one of the missionaries illustrations and I'm kind of changing it for our purposes here. But when I was in middle school, there was this game that came out and it was, uh, I think it was groundbreaking at the time, but it was called Final Fantasy VII. You guys remember this game? It was great. The main character was Cloud. And um, anyhow, if you don't know this game, it's called a role-playing game, RPG. It takes a long time to beat, okay? So I, I Googled that because I don't remember my middle school days as well. But uh, I Googled it and it said roughly around 82.5 hours to beat the whole game. Okay, to complete every task, every mission, 82.5 hours, okay? I'm pretty sure when I was a kid, I didn't have those walkthroughs, which kind of help you play the game. So I'm pretty sure it took me like 160 hours, though, because I was not as smart as everyone else. So it took me about probably about 160 hours to beat the game. But then on top of that, right, you, you have these characters, and these characters you can level up. 
And the way you level up is by fighting battles, right? You fight the bad guys. So every time you fight a bad guy, you get something called experience points and money, okay? You, you fight a bad guy, you get all this experience point money, you get enough experience, then you level up, you level up. Uh, you get enough gold and money, you can buy more equipment like swords and, and armor and helmets and liquid potions, right? All these things make you stronger, right? I, at the end, after I completed the game, right, I completed every mission possible, I was like, I want to be level 99 for every person uh, on my team, right? So I think there was like six or seven of, seven of them, right, on my roster. And so I wanted to bring every single one of them up to level 99. So I had to fight all these battles, win all these experience points, right? And I don't know how much time I put in there, but my guess has to be at least twice as long or almost equally as long as it took me to beat the game. So I think it was probably another like 160 hours. So I played 160 hours to beat the game, and then I played another 160 hours to get all of these experience points to level up, level up, level up, right? I'm pretty sure I spent about 320 hours on that game. 320 hours divided by 40 is eight. That's eight weeks. If you work full-time just playing the game, full-time, right, eight weeks, right, it would take you two months to, to do what I did. I wasted two months of my life, okay? When my mom and dad would look at me playing this game, when they would watch me, right, what they would say is, in my head, I'm like, I'm getting rich. I'm getting all these experience points. I'm getting all this virtual money, right? But my parents would look at me and say, you're poor. What are you doing? You're getting fatter. You're, you're gaining more weight. Like, you don't exercise outside. Like, you, you, you're, you're, you're not getting as good grades in school, right? You're losing at life, but you're winning in the video game. You know, we hear these stories about predominantly men who get so addicted to video games that they lose their jobs. They drop out of school, right? They have pizza box flying high to the sky because that's all they eat, right? And they're playing video games, video games. And in video game money, they're getting rich. They're like, yeah, I'm rich in video game money. But in reality, their parents would look at them and say, you're poor. Look at you. You've gained 50 pounds. Your cholesterol's through the roof. Like, you have high blood pressure. You, you don't have, like, friends in real life. Like, all of your, you know, and they would look at them and say, look, you think you're rich, but you're actually poor. And in the same way, I wonder if Jesus says that to us. Like, you think in real life you're rich. You think, yeah, okay, I got a house, I got a car, I got a good-paying job. But in reality, spiritually speaking, when I look at you, you are poor. You are naked, in fact. And Jesus says, look, come buy from me. In other words, what he's saying is invest your time Invest your time into me. Invest your resources into me, into my kingdom. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus will put it like this in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What gain is it? What can you take with you after you die? Nothing. And so what's the cure? Jesus tells us here. From 19 to 22, I think he gives us a recipe for how to overcome this lukewarmness. He says this in verse 19, for those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And I think that's step one. If for some of you, you're getting angry at me and you're saying, you know, you know you're not making any sense, Pastor Eric, or whatever, I don't know, maybe I'm challenging you, maybe the sermon is challenging you, but the first step is to be reproved and disciplined. Why? Not because Jesus Christ hates you, not because I hate you, but because Jesus Christ loves you. And he says, I love the people I discipline and reprove. And I'm disciplining you right now. I'm telling you the truth, and it hurts a little bit, it stings a little bit, but I love you. And that's the first step is to just listen. And to hear Jesus rebuking us and to say, look, I'm disciplining you. But the second thing is this. 
He says to hear me. The second step is to hear me. Jesus uses the word hear twice, and it is the same Greek word. He says, if anyone hears my voice, he who has an ear, let him hear. And this word hear is the word for listen and understand, but it also means to accurately understand someone. And Jesus is saying, look, accurately understand me. Hear me now. Do you hear this sermon? Do you hear? Do you understand? And, if Jesus, and Jesus is now saying the third thing, which is this, to repent. He says, those, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. That word zealous in the Greek is zeleo, and it just means to have this word sit upon your heart, like have it weigh it down. And then repent. Turn back to Jesus. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, at the very beginning of the Gospels, would say this. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And I would say this. The kingdom of God is here. He established it in the church. The church is his kingdom. And the church is growing. And I'm not talking about a building, but I'm talking about a people, a community of people. And he's saying, the kingdom of God is here. Repent. Turn back from this wickedness. And then finally, look with me. At, look with me. He says this. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, and I talked about this, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Fourth thing Jesus says is, look, I'm not asking you to sell all your possessions. I'm not asking you to do any of those things. I'm asking you to just eat with me, to dine with me. You know, in the ancient world, it, it's, eating was very different than in our modern context. You can eat with anybody. Uh, at a food court, you could eat with a ton of strangers, right? But, but in the ancient world, eating was a very, very intimate act. You only did this with people you really wanted to fellowship with, people you really wanted to be a part of your tribe. In other words, it was sacred. It was deeper than just food. And in the same way, Jesus is asking you, look, like, look, come and eat with me, fellowship with me in this sacred act. Like, like read your Bibles, pray, like, meditate. Like, let my Holy Spirit speak to you. Give me some space. Stop looking at social media. Stop playing video games. Stop doing all these, stop busying yourself and just sit for a moment. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Then he says, like, fast occasionally. Like, if there's something that's breaking your heart and injustice, like, fast and pray for that thing. And then, and then you know what? Like, every week, I just want you to stop working. Like, put down your, your jobs, put down your laptops, put down all the things that you're doing, and just, like, just focus on me and worship me weekly. And he's saying, just come and do those things. I'm not asking you to, like, like, like literally pick up a cross and go die for me somewhere. He's saying, just just dine with me and eat with me. And I think this is the first step, friends. Jesus is just challenging you and I to just sit with him and to dine and to fellowship and to eat with him daily. Friends, I know that this is challenging for many of us. We're so busy and it always feels so boring to do it. But I'm telling you, this is why it's a discipline. This is why it's a practice. We have to practice this we are being discipled by our iPhones. We're being discipled by our laptops. We're being discipled by um, media figures. We're being discipled by every single thing on planet Earth except for the Holy Spirit and His Word. And can we make space for Him so that we can eat and fellowship and dine with Him just for a little bit? And I'm telling you, that's the next faithful step. And, you know, as you do your practices, God will challenge you to another small step. And then another small step. And then maybe 15 steps later, you'll look back and you'll be like, oh my goodness, I sold everything and I'm following Jesus now. But it didn't happen at step one. It happened after 15 steps of just being obedient to Christ. 
Friends, I want to commend you. Let me end with this. This is sort of an interesting passage because at the very beginning, it, it's sort of weird. Like if I put it like this, you'll, you'll kind of think I'm weird, but, like it, but it's true, right? At the beginning of the passage, Jesus is kind of eating us. Right, this is why he says, like, I spit you out of my mouth. Why? Because he was kind of eating the church, right? Uh, and so he says, look, I, I kind of ate you, and you were kind of lukewarm, so I spat you out. But at the end of the passage, it's sort of interesting. He's inviting us to this meal with him. And, at, and on the cross, what you find is that at this meal, what Jesus will offer you is his very body and his blood shed on the cross. What he's offering you in this meal is his very body broken for you because of your sin, because of your disloyalty, because of how you treated him. And what he's going to do is he's going to spill his blood on the cross for you to drink. Why? So that it cleanses you of all of your sins. In other words, what you'll find at this meal is the love and grace of Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus Christ is not going to come. I mean, look nowhere. I mean, yeah, Jesus said he spits you out. But then he says, look, like, I want to eat with you. I want to fellowship with you. In fact, I'm knocking at your doors and I'm like asking you to come in. Please let me in. What we find in this passage is an immense, immensely gracious, loving, compassionate Lord and Savior. And he beckons us and he calls us to dine with him. Friends, I pray that this week, at the very least this week, that you begin afresh. That you begin by just taking the next faithful step and just saying, Lord, I'm going to spend time with you this week, daily. I'm going to pray and I'm going to read your word. I'm going to try to listen to your Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I'll be the first to confess, Lord, that so many times, Lord, I say in my heart, I need nothing. All I need is my strength. All I need is my money, my time. And so, Lord, I confess that to you, Lord. It's made me complacent. It's made me comfortable. And so, Lord, we pray and we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us. That, Lord, although you've been standing at our hearts and at our church knocking and knocking and knocking, Lord, we have not responded to you. So, Lord, we confess those sins before you. But now, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come into our hearts and light our hearts on fire. Please, Lord, we need you. I'm only a man. I can only speak your words, but, Lord, only your spirit, Lord, can do the work that I cannot do in this congregation. Lord, I pray, God, that there, there are little, like, dry leaves in every single person's heart here, Lord. And I pray that you would just drop a little spark in their hearts right now, Lord, that you would light them up on fire. Just burn within them a passion, Lord, just to pursue you again. Just to pick up their Bibles, just to read, Lord, just to pray again. And, Lord, I pray that as we pursue you, Lord, as we open up this door, Lord, may we experience your love and your grace and your mercy all over again. Let it be like that first time, Lord, that we experience you all over again. God, we thank you, God, for this time. We pray this on your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Church, on your seats.